Thank you for taking time to listen to this week's message from Horizon West Church. You can find even more content, including video archives of this and other past messages at horizonwestchurch.com. And if you're in the Horizon West area, be sure to visit us sometime soon. Now enjoy this podcast from Horizon West Church. Welcome again to Horizon West Church. Uh, We're going to go back into the book of Nehemiah. We're back into our rebuild series. Um, And what we're going to do tonight is we're going to live in chapter 9, but it's going to be more of a springboard into uh, something that I'll explain in just a minute. Um, I'm going to actually read the entire chapter, and I just want to prepare you. This is 38 verses, and you've probably not heard somebody stand and read 38 verses before. But here's what I believe. I believe the word, word of God is powerful, and I believe the Word of God has the ability to uh, administer God's truth and His revelation in a way that can change hearts and lives. And so I'm going to ask that you just stick with me, and I also want to give you this challenge. What we're going to look at tonight is a cycle uh, that the people of God go through. It's established in the Scriptures, and it's seen in our own experiences with God. And I want to see if you can figure out some things about what that cycle looks like as I read Nehemiah chapter 9. Let me do that over you. Now on the 24th day of the month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. And for another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. By the way, that's several hours. So this isn't gonna be too bad. Here we go, verse four. On the stairs of the Levites stood several men who cried out with a loud voice to the Lord their God. And then the Levites said, stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and all praise. Verse six, the Israelites are gonna to begin to recount their history as a people. Listen to what they say. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that's in it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you, and you made with him the covenant to give his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite, and you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt, and you heard their cry at the Red Sea, and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land, for you knew that they had acted arrogantly against our fathers, and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them, so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land, and you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters." By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day, by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came to Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger. You brought water out of the rock for their thirst and you told them to go in and possess the land you had sworn to give them. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the works and the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you were a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and you did not forsake them. 
Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and they said, this is our God who brought us up out of Egypt and they committed great blasphemies. You in your great mercy did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from their mouth, but gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out. Their feet did not swell. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner so that they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven. You brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land. And you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and their peoples that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land. They took possession of houses full of good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. That sounds like a good deal. Listen to verse 26. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and they rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back. They killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you and they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard from heaven. And according to your great mercy, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you. And you abandoned them to the land of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven and many times you delivered them according to your mercies and you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments but sinned against your rules which if a person does them, he will live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and a merciful God. Verse 32. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us and upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. You have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them, even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them and in the large and rich land that you set before them. They did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. So behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings which you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. So because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Amen? What I want to do with this passage is kind of use it as a launching pad to talk about five cycles or five stages in the sin renewal cycle of the people of God. I'm going to throw up the first one in just a second here. The the, the reality is that the Israelites, as they're recounting their history as a people, they, they mark these stages that they have gone through of turning to God, rebelling, 
getting caught up in sin and exile and then turning back to God. And so we're going to break this out. And my hope is that as you see the story of the people of Israel, you go, hang on, that sounds a little bit like my story. And here's why. You cannot have mastery over something until you understand how it works, right? So we're going to see how sin and rebellion and depravity, how that works to lead us to a place of spiritual life. This is the first stage in the sin renewal cycle for the people of God. Number one is abundance. This is the starting point. This is where we find the people of Israel in Nehemiah chapter 9. I would make the argument that abundance is the most natural and normal condition for the people of God to find themselves in. You go, well, that doesn't sound quite right, right? Because I know missionaries that are, you know, suffering on the mission field. I know people that are persecuted. Let, let me make my point. I believe that abundance is the most natural and normal condition for the people of God. John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus said this. The thief, which is Satan, comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus said, it's the reason I came. I came so that my people would know abundance. If you've heard me speak more than two or three times, you know that this story was the catalyst for me at 15 years old to pursue Jesus. It was a very simple thing. I read the words and I went, there's two possibilities. One is that he is lying, that he did not come to bring abundant life because what I'm experiencing is not abundance. Or he's telling the truth and I am missing something. And by the power of the Spirit of God and by His mercy, He convinced me that what He was saying was true, and it set me on a journey that I continue to this day. What does it look like to live the abundant life as I follow Jesus? Over the course of the message, I'm going to demonstrate truths from three areas and a few others, but primarily these three. One is the story of the people of Israel in their national history. That's what they're doing in Nehemiah 9. Another is the teachings of Jesus and the apostles. And the last one that I'll refer to a lot that's kind of unique is the Garden of Eden. Uh, let me go there now. Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. I'm establishing this abundance principle that God has. And this is what it says, Genesis 2, 15 to 17. So the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Did you know that when God created mankind, he created him and her to experience abundance? He did not say, hey, there's a few trees you can eat, but most of them are off limits. He said the opposite. He said, every tree that I've created is going to produce fruit that you can enjoy. And oh, by the way, you're going to walk with the animals. You're going to talk face to face with the creator of the universe. It's going to be a really sweet deal. But there's one thing you must not do. You must not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We were created for abundance. God's first command was almost entirely permissive and only slightly prohibitive, right? Now, because of sin, it's flipped the other way, right? Now, what feels natural is lack. What feels natural is temptation and sin, but it wasn't always that way. Let me show you one other place. Deuteronomy 28, verses 1 through 8. This is, this is what I believe the people of Israel are thinking about in Nehemiah 9, based on the promises of God. Deuteronomy 28. If you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. 
And all these blessings will come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed will you be in the city. Blessed will you be in the field. Blessed will be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds and of the young of your flock. Blessed will be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed will you be when you come in and blessed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. They will come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. The Lord will command the blessing on you in your barns and in all that you undertake, and he will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Wow, that's a lot of blessing. God's saying, people of Israel, my program for you is abundance. My program for you is overflowing goodness. My program for you is blessing. There's only one condition you must fully obey and carefully follow. Now, some of you might go, this is starting to sound a little bit like the prosperity gospel, so let me draw a clear distinction at this point. If you know anything about the prosperity gospel, this is, this is what I call the TV gospel. For a gift of $9.99, Jesus will answer all your prayers, right? The reason the abundance principle is different than the prosperity gospel is this. The prosperity gospel asserts that faith and godliness always produce material abundance, and that if a person is not abounding materially, they're either in sin or they're lacking in faith. That is not the gospel. That is heresy. I'll illustrate this for you in a very personal way. When I was 18 years old, my mom got her second diagnosis of cancer, and it was the one that uh, we knew would be a, a miracle if she were healed. By the time it got to about two weeks uh, left of her life, there was a, a couple of ladies from a nearby church, and they asked if they could come to the house and pray uh, for my mom. Now, I know these women, and, and I love these women. Unfortunately, when they showed up, they said to my mom, Pam, the Lord has revealed to us that you're supposed to be healed. And the reason you're not healed must be because there is sin in your life. And I'm telling you, the last two weeks of her life, that was one of the biggest things she wrestled through. God, examine my heart. I love you. I've, I'm honoring your word. My mom had raised seven children to walk in the Lord. She was a pastor's wife. She wasn't perfect. But that messed her up, and people have been messed up by this message. God doesn't want you to suffer. Therefore, if you're suffering, that is prosperity gospel. That's not truth. The truth is sometimes God will allow sickness, suffering, or material lack in our lives in order to strengthen our faith or to be a witness to his faithfulness. Listen, the prosperity gospel, the reason it's not good is because it doesn't exalt the goodness of God enough. A prosperity gospel says, as long as I have nice cars and money, I'm good. And God says, no, you need something much more than you need nice cars and money. You need to abound in the soul and the spirit. And also, when it is appropriate in the will of God to receive his abundance. We don't grab for it. We receive it with open hands. We say, God, if it's abundance you mean for me, then give me abundance. If it's hardship you mean for me, then give me hardship. We say something like what Paul said in Philippians chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. By the way, he was in prison when he wrote it. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty in, and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul was not talking about home runs and touchdowns. Paul was saying, I've been created for abundance, but I've learned a secret. I can abound in prison. I can abound on a beach after being shipwrecked. 
I've learned this principle of abundance it is less about what I have materially and it's more about the man that God is making me and the way that he's using me in the world. Here's something interesting though. And I'm a little bit on the edge with this. So if you disagree with me, that's okay. You're not dishonoring the scripture. I have a theory that all other things being equal, people of God abound more so even materially than people who are not followers of, of Christ. Because people of God understand principles like hard work, integrity, servanthood. And these principles actually enable you to become great workers and business people and leaders. And it's, you, you see even in the scripture, like Joseph goes to prison and pretty soon he's like the second most you know, important person in Egypt. Daniel uh, is in the lion's den, but he overcomes and he's a witness to the goodness of God. Jesus is crucified, but he's raised to life and exalted to the right hand of the Father. The normal way is for us to abound. It's just that we live in a season where we're gonna also experience brokenness. And I don't know about you, but I don't wanna settle for a cup of something in this life to have nothing for all of eternity. I, I would rather struggle now to abound for all of eternity. Here, here is the danger though. When God begins to abound us, especially in material ways, there is always an inherent danger in that. And this is the danger. This is the second stage in the sin renewal cycle. The danger is that we're gonna turn to this. Idolatry. Because here's how it works. This is the human, the human nature. We go, well, if a little bit of something's good, then a lot of it must be better, right? This is, this is what Eve did, right? She says, God, you've put me in this place and it's so good, man. I can eat anything except this one thing, but it's, it's so good and this one thing and pretty soon she's so consumed with this, the one thing that she can't do that she goes and does it. Do you notice in Nehemiah chapter nine that they mentioned two people by name and only two, the rest of it's this, the, the nation. They mentioned Abraham, you know what was true about Abraham? Abraham lived in Ur of the Chaldeans, and this was a polytheistic, false God-worshiping people. And God shows up and says, Abram, I'm God, and I'm going to make a covenant with you. And he introduces himself, this one God, not the multiple gods of the nations, this one God, and he establishes a covenant with Abraham. So they mention Abraham. They also mention Moses, and what did Moses do? Moses was the one that leads the people out of Egypt, yet again, a polytheistic nation, worshiping all these other gods. And remember what Moses does when he gets in the wilderness. God calls him up to the mountain and gives him the Ten Commandments. If you've seen the Prince of Egypt or of kings and gods, or, or the, the, I think there was one called the Ten Commandments, but these, these epic movies where, you know, he's coming down from the mountain, but you remember what the first two commandments are? No other gods, no idols. This is, this is first and foremost. You cannot make for yourself an idol. You cannot worship other gods, or everything is going to go bad for you. In fact, I, I haven't done a deep dive on this, but I think it's pretty safe to say that the one most consistent thing that the prophets hammered the people of God on throughout the Old Testament is idolatry. Stop worshiping idols. Worship the true God. Now, someone might say, well, we live in 21st century America. I've never seen an idol. Let me lean on A.W. Tozer, great 20th century theologian and pastor. He says this, let us beware lest we in our pride accept the erroneous notion that idolatry consists only in kneeling before visible objects of adoration and that civilized people are therefore free from it. The essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of him. It begins in the mind and it may be present where no overt act of worship 
has taken place. I might argue that we've got more idols than the world's ever known. We have idols called wealth. We have idols called sex. We have idols, idols called alcohol. We have idols called prosperity, called nationalism, called on and on and on. And we're not bowing down to these things, but they're consuming our minds. And whatever controls your mind controls you. Idols. And so Nehemiah chapter 9, uh, going back to this idea of abundance and, and what they were called to, what, what they had before the idolatry, they said, verse 22, God, you gave us kingdoms. Verse 23, you multiplied their children as the stars of heaven. You brought them into the land. Verse 25, they captured fortified cities. They took possession of houses. And the, the, the conclusion, Nehemiah 9.25 is this, and so the people ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. And you're thinking, They've arrived, yes, good. And the very next word is, nevertheless. Right? You know what the people of God didn't know how to do? You know what we struggle to do? Is to say, enough. It's enough. You know the principle in Genesis chapter one, where God creates on day one and day two and three and four and five and six, and then God who is infinitely creative goes, that's all. That this, we're stopping here. We're going to rest today. It's like, man, did God need to rest? No, God needed to establish for us that if you don't set boundaries, you're going to resort to idolatry. You're going to go, if I can make X amount of dollars working five days, I can make even more working seven, and you're going to tarnish and taint everything in your life as you pursue the God of money. And God said, learn to say enough. You know what Eve failed to do? She failed to say, it's enough. God, you've given me all of this in Genesis chapter 3, 6, it says that when she saw that the fruit was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also good for acquiring wisdom, she took and she ate it. She said, God, what you've given me is good, but I think I can take something even better. I might introduce you to you that the majority of your problems are not from your circumstances or from uh, the situations in life you find yourself in. The majority of your problems are you don't know when to say enough. Earlier this week, um, when we were in Wisconsin, I, I got the chance to listen in on a conversation between two little boys. And if you've ever had that opportunity where they don't know you're listening, that's a pretty cool thing. It was the most bizarre. I, I'm, I'm driving, and my seven-year-old nephew, Finn, and my four-year-old son, Jonah, I, I started hearing the conversation when my seven-year-old nephew, Finn, said, you only think McDonald's is the best because you've never had Burger King. I went, Wow. <laughs> Really, that's, that's like, those are the two things you guys are esteeming, right? So we got back, and of course, I had to take my son to Burger King. He'd never been. He's almost five years old. So we go to Burger King, and I've got my, my cell phone out, and I'm like, okay, Jonah, we're going to send a video to Finn. I, wa I want him to see you take your first bite of Burger King. So he takes a bite. I said, what do you think? He goes, it's kind of good and kind of bad. <laughs> he goes, but it's kind of more bad. <laughs> and I'm like, so I'm like, well, okay. You know, so, I, so I sent it. But actually, the reason I'm telling you that, it was just a funny story, but the reason I'm telling you is I also got him a milkshake. He took four bites of the burger. He drank the milkshake to the dregs. I mean, he, he finished, and it was a large milkshake. And I wasn't really paying attention because, I mean, we were doing a lunch in the courtyard, but I was, you know, kind of doing some other things. And after about 30 minutes, he goes, Dad, my stomach hurts. <laughs> and I look, and the milkshake's just gone. We laugh. But it was his way of learning to say, Enough. The milkshake was good to hear, but I drank too much. And the problem is when we grow to adulthood, if we haven't learned the principle of enough, 
The danger is not that we come out with a stomach ache. The danger is that we go into stage three of the cycle, which is slavery. Slavery. The, the enough that we couldn't say no to, it begins to own us and to possess us. For Israel, this was a, a literal slavery. We, we know that in 939, give you a quick biblical timeline, 939 BC, almost a thousand years before Jesus, Solomon, the son of the great King David, comes to the throne. He starts off so good. Lord, give me wisdom. It's all I need. Just give me wisdom. Great. You're going to get wisdom. You're going to get all these other things as well. And then Solomon starts marrying people, foreign women. The issue is not ethnic. The issue is religious. He's marrying women who don't honor and esteem God. He marry, he's marrying idolatrous people. And so what are they doing? They're bringing their idols into Jerusalem. And so the nation of Israel is like, well, if it's good for our king, then we should probably worship idols as well. You know how long it took for the kingdom to be split in two? Eight years. Eight years from the time Solomon introduces idols to Jerusalem, his son Rehoboam takes the throne and splits the kingdom. That's how quick they moved from abundance to idolatry and into hardship. 722 BC, the, the nation of Assyria takes the northern kingdom, the ten tribes, takes them captive. Seven, uh, uh, sorry, 586 BC, the, the southern kingdom, Judah, is taken into captivity by Babylon. Babylon. So the Jews, when they're talking about the oppression, the slavery, they're talking about a real thing. They, they physically were driven out of the place where God had called them to, and they were enslaved by the nations. For Adam and Eve, it was also a, a physical reality. They were removed from the garden, remember? They sin, and God says, you can no longer be in the garden because if you eat of the tree of life, you're going to be stuck in perpetual fallenness, so you can't go there but they're removed, they're exiled. But there's another kind of slavery. It's not physical, it's not material. It's what Jesus says to the Pharisees in John 8, verses 34 to 36, he says this. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever, the son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Jesus is here answering the objection of the Pharisees. They say, Jesus, we're descendants of Abraham. We've never been slaves of anyone. Really? These are teachers of the law. These are guys, they understand their history. They were slaves of everyone. But Jesus says, more importantly than that, you're a slave to sin. The person who begins doing something because they have the freedom to do it, but all of a sudden they don't have the freedom to stop doing it, Right? Addiction, habitual sin, the, the, the reason that men will blow up their lives, their marriages, and their families, not because they wanted to, but because they couldn't stop looking or they couldn't stop messing around outside of their marriage. The reason people will, will blow up their family life and their kids will grow up to hate them because while they were amassing great wealth and building their 401k, they weren't being dad or weren't being mom, and they lost what mattered most, not because they wanted to, but because they were a slave to the pursuit of money. Jesus says, if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. As we walk out this, this slavery to sin, what has to happen is we've got to reach a rock bottom point. There's got to be a point where we go, this isn't working for me. This seemed good, but this is not clearly not good. This is not leading me where I need to be. I had a family member uh, several years ago and I can remember on like seven different occasions going, well, now she's reached rock bottom. <laughs> Nowhere to go but up from here. 
And you know what happens? They grab a shovel. You're like, I guess rock bottom is further for her, right? Because you can't choose that for people. But the Israelites would inevitably get to this place. Sometimes it took decades or even hundreds of years where they go, okay, this is not working. And they moved into the fourth stage of this spiritual cycle. They move into this desperation. Desperation. Look at Nehemiah 9.27. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 27. This is what they write. Therefore, you gave them, you God gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. In other words, they said, God, this isn't working. This slavery, this exile, this being outside of this, this isn't working. And they cried out to God. The story is told, it's not original to me, but the story is told of a young disciple who, with his spiritual father, uh, went on a long walk. And the spiritual father said to him, what do you want most? And he said, I want to know God. I said, okay. Walking past a river, the, the man took the young disciple and had him kneel down and then plunged his face under the water. Some of you know the story. He held it for a few seconds, brought him up. He said, what do you want most? He said, I want to know God. He plunged him back under the water, held him a few more seconds, brought him up. What do you want most? He said, I want to know God. Plunged him under the water and held him for like 30 seconds, brought him up, said, what do you want most? He said, I want to breathe. Desperation has a way of revealing what we want most. It also does this. It reveals to us that the human heart normally does not turn to God until everything else fails. Right? We take breathing for granted until we can't breathe, and then it's all we think about. We take God for granted until our life gets to be such a mess, we go, God, I've tried every other way. It's not working. I'm turning to you. For me, it works like this. I will tend to ignore whatever the problem is in my life and just pretend like it's not there. You ever been there? Oh, the marriage is pretty good. Yeah, we're, we're hanging in there. By the way, when someone goes, eh, that's a bad, they're like lying. Yeah, it's good, you know. No, there is, but we want to cover it up. We want to hide, ignore from it. And then when we can't run from it anymore, we can't ignore it anymore, what do we do? Man, I'm going to will myself out of this. I'm strong. I'm an educated person. I can get through this. We white knuckle, we will. And then that fails. What do we do? We start to cave in, get discouraged. I'm never going to beat this. I'm never going to overcome whatever that problem is. And then eventually, this is my pattern. You know what I do? And then I go, maybe, maybe God could get me out of this. But I'm dumbfounded that sometimes it takes weeks or months for me to get there. It's like, well, why does it take us so long to get so desperate before we go, God, I need, I need you. Romans chapter 10, verse 13 says that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. The problem is we often wait so long to do that. You know what Nehemiah does, verse 4 of, of chapter 1? He hears that the, the wall of Jerusalem has been broken down and the gates have been burned by fire. And, and this is what happens. He says, as soon as I heard the words, I sat down and I wept and mourned for days and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. The moment Nehemiah realized the situation for his people was desperate, he turned to God. I would call that spiritual maturity. The measure of spiritual maturity is how long do you have to be desperate before you turn to God? Those who have grown in their faith go, man, the minute I know something's not right in my marriage, Lord, I need you. The minute I see something in my children that, that they're moving in a direction of godlessness, God, I need you. And we pray 
and we fast and we seek the heart of God like Nehemiah did. Now, the truth is, in Nehemiah 9, I'm applying this individually. I think that's an important application because we're all in this cycle, right? But the people in Nehemiah 9 are applying it in a national level. And I think there's a lesson for us in that. They did not say, we're a great nation. We're the best nation. I mean, no other nation worships God. We, we've at least got that. They said, no, 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 we're, we're rebellious. We're sinful. They even owned the sins of their fathers. Go, well, they didn't do that. No, but they recognized they were the people who did those things. And so they confessed and laid that down. They, they had a pivot moment where they recognized their desperation and they turned to God. And when we do that, when our desperation causes us to turn to God, to finally cry out to him, we arrive at the fifth stage in this sin renewal cycle. It's the stage of deliverance. Deliverance. Two observations from Nehemiah chapter 9 about deliverance. First is this. Deliverance was always mediated to the people of Israel through a person. You notice that? Uh, God didn't show up to the nation and say, hey guys, come back. He sent them Moses. He sent them Samuel. He sent them Deborah and Esther. He sent them prophets. Deliverance for the people of Israel was always connected to a deliverer, to an individual. And the second observation is this. Deliverance for the people of Israel was always a temporary condition. Isn't that the heartbreaking thing in Nehemiah 9? How many times can we say nevertheless? Everything was going well. All they had to do was remain in the land and worship God and yet and but and nevertheless, they couldn't do it. They went back into the cycle of idolatry, slavery, desperation. The urgent need for humanity has always been for a greater deliverer and a permanent deliverance. And so we get to Hebrews chapter 10, which says this, Hebrews 10, 11, 12, and 14. Every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. I want to raise us up as we move toward close. I want to raise us up to about a 30,000 foot view. I, I want us to look at the story of Nehemiah from the plan, the redemptive history of God's people. Because there's something God is teaching us in the story of Nehemiah that goes way beyond building a wall. Nehemiah is going to be the last great leader that the people of Israel have before Jesus shows up. And you know how the story of Nehemiah is going to end? This is a spoiler alert. We're going to be there in two weeks. It ends poorly. <laughs> the people sin. The wall's built. Everything's there. And they, once again, are sinning, turning from God. And it's almost like God is saying, I'm going to show you in this thing that we call the Old Testament, how the greatest men like David and Gideon and Moses and great women like Esther and Deborah could never secure permanent deliverance for the people of God. You know why? They were never meant to. We needed a greater deliverer. We needed a permanent deliverance. So Nehemiah moves off the scene. One last voice comes onto the scene and then the Old Testament is closed. It's a prophet named Malachi. And this is what Malachi closes his prophecy and closes the Old Testament with. Malachi 4 verses 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. 
And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, or I will come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And if you were reading that in the Bible and you flipped one page from Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, you'd read these words. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. God was establishing that no man, no woman, could ultimately deliver and save God's people. Only the Messiah, only Jesus could do that. Guys, if you can throw the, the cycle up one more time, I, I, I want to I show you this one last time, these five stages. And I want to kind of close with asking you this question. Where, where in this sin renewal cycle do you find yourself? Uh, let me speak first to followers of Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus, you, you have the Spirit of God living inside of you. Unfortunately, we don't get a pass on this. We kind of keep going through it, but, but what's different is the cross stands at the middle of it. And when we start to slip into idolatry leading to slavery to sin, the Holy Spirit of God goes, Chris, this isn't good for you. Come on back, right? Return, repent, so that I don't have to go weeks or months. I can listen to the Spirit of God. I can repent. I can turn back. And yet, as long as we're living, we will be in this cycle to some degree. But the truth is, if you're here tonight, you're watching online, and you haven't ever surrendered your life to Jesus, you're stuck right down here. That There is no other deliverance. Romans 10, 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So if you're a follower of Jesus, what I, I want to encourage you is locate yourself in this for yourself. Well, where are you right now? Man, I'm, Chris, I'm struggling with something that's pulling me away. I, I want to be more for God. I want to do, I, I want to be closer, but I can't let go of, it's idolatry, call it what it is. Or you're wrestling with some addiction to sin, or you're reaching a point of desperation, cry out to God. And if you've not yet surrendered your life to Jesus, this is your hope. That a man named Jesus died on a cross and was raised to life to secure your salvation, your deliverance from sin once and for all. Thanks again for listening to the Horizon West Church Podcast. If you were inspired or encouraged by something you heard today, share it with a friend. For more information like our service times, location, and other info, be sure to visit us online at horizonwestchurch.com. Have a great week.